Um, I don't know about you, but uh, sometimes, in fact, actually quite a lot of the time, uh, being a Christian can be quite challenging and difficult. And I, I sometimes feel a bit overwhelmed, honestly speaking, with the amount of everything that I need to do to change, to add to my life. Another message on a Sunday, and I feel like I haven't really done much about what I heard last week. Anybody, am I yeah, making any sense? Like, oh yeah, last week's message, and we're on to another one, but I haven't, I haven't read my notes, I haven't listened to it, and I haven't, don't feel like I've done much about it. And last week, how many of you can remember what, this is not a test, by the way, but it's like, it was about being, you are the salt of the earth, and Matt brought some great um, explanations about the things that salt do. Can it? I mean, I'm just like trying to remember, as I was preparing this message, I was thinking, oh, being salty, I need to be salty, something about fertilizing, preserving, all the aspects of salt. And then I think, did, did I, this week, was I salty? Was I, was I like that? So I, I, I sometimes find that week by week, we're trying to add more things to our lives and trying to do more things, get more things right, be more righteous, be more holy, and it's challenging. And Jesus today, well, Jesus, I today, Jesus through the passage, is uh, helping us to understand how we can live in the kingdom of God and how we can outwork the things that he's asking us to do in the power of the Spirit are built on the basis of his righteousness. So I'm hoping we can learn from Jesus in a moment during his Sermon on the Mount that we're looking at where he almost takes a pause and stops with his um, definitive statements about who we are and what we're to do and brings us back to the foundation of where it's all from. So that's where we're going to be going. So if you've got a Bible or if you can read the screen, um, we're going to be reading from Matthew 5, 17 to 20. Just a short section. And um, it's pretty um, epic what Jesus has to say. 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches other accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. I mean, that is a huge statement for the Jewish listeners surrounding Jesus on this mountainside. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, we don't use Mount. I mean, I guess use Mount Washington, but we don't often use Mount. I'm going to climb the Mount. But this is the people who've gathered around Jesus, and it was a hilly area, and they are waiting on every word. They have come from miles around to hear this messianic figure, the Jesus that they've been hearing about, and he's been doing incredible things. And they are waiting to hear what he's going to say. And Jesus 
says to them, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, I, at this point, I imagine, you know when you say you've lost the room, I imagine suddenly people's minds are just, just, just cannot conceive about what this might look like. The teachers of the law, my righteousness, better than the teachers of the law, it sounds like me on a, on a Tuesday or preparing for this message, thinking, oh, what have I done with the other thing? I haven't done that yet. How am I going to do this? They're suddenly exposed. I, I, I can't do this. I'm never going to be like the teachers of the law, the Pharisees. And Jesus wants to help them understand and unpack what that might mean. So there are times when you preach, when you realize you need to clarify something. And it's like in his, you know, you can say, hang on a second. Uh, let me, let, let me tip back up. Let me just be clear about this. And it feels almost like in this sermon that Jesus preaches, this is one of those moments when he's talked a lot about the life in the kingdom of God and who we are, the Beatitudes we call them, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And at this point, you feel like he's like, okay, actually, I just want to backtrack and lay the foundation for what I'm talking about here. So this is Jesus' moment to help them understand where is this coming from, this new life, this new kingdom way of working, this way that is different than all the teachers of the laws have been speaking about before. How do you live this life? If your righteousness has surpassed the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, I'm not going to be able to do this. So Jesus unpacks this statement and helps us understand it. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. This is a cosmic sentence. I mean, this is a statement that includes the air. I mean, this is when Jesus' words are so uh, challenging because he's talking about end times. He's talking about the fulfillment of the ages. And now he's setting this in the, in the context of following Jesus, following him and the law. And he says, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but he says, not the smallest iota, the least uh, dot or comma, will not disappear or will not be discarded until Jesus returns and ushers in a new creation. The law is going to remain. He's saying, I've not come to abolish. The law remains. I've not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. The law stands. It's like, oh, great. The law stands. Oh, yeah, and all those things that we're meant to be doing, like the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, and the teachers of the law, 613 laws, apparently, that they were trying to fulfill. I, there's no way I'm going to do that. And now Jesus says that it won't disappear. You mean it's going to carry on? It will be there all my whole lifetime? Yes. Jesus is saying, I've not come to abolish it but I have come to fulfill it. And Jesus wants to make clear that he had not come to abolish the law and the prophets, i.e. the whole of the Old Testament. And the way he phrases it suggests that some people have been thinking or saying out loud this very fact. Some people were pretty upset with his supposed attitude to the Old Testament. So people were comparing Jesus' revolutionary life and message 
with the teaching of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, and their charge was that Jesus was basically a liberal, and he was abandoning the high standards of the Old Testament. There were some grumblers and complainers. There were people who were hanging on every word, and there were also people who were saying, wait a second, this doesn't sound right to me. This is dodgy. This is not what I thought this should be taught. For the scribes and the teachers stood so firmly on these truths. And they were like, we know this for certain because accusations were made against Jesus because of his freedom towards the Sabbath law. Do you remember his friendship towards outcasts and sinners? They were like, that is not how you're supposed to to be a a Pharisee and to to be a teacher and a rabbi. and going to parties and all that. They're, they're applying the laws that they held so dear and saying, Jesus wasn't living that way. And do you remember the Sabbath laws that he seemed to break all the time, healing the sick on the Sabbath? And what else? Do you remember something else like taking grain of wheat for his, his, his disciples to eat? And he was going against the laws that they held so dear. These, these Sabbath laws, they're in the 613. They're there, and they're so... They're not understanding where Jesus is coming from. They're criticizing him. They're coming against it. So no one, he said, I've not come to abolish the laws. He's aware of what they're saying. And he said, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And the verb here in the original language literally means to fill. He came to complete, to fill up all the law and the prophets. So the Old Testament contained doctrinal teaching. It contains many things. We're going to look at three of things and see how Jesus fulfills them. The word Torah, which is what it was referring to here, usually translated uh, as law, means revealed instruction. And we often talk about the Torah being the first five books of the Old Testament, all the, the commands and the laws and the instructions that God revealed to his people. They were precious, precious laws that had been revealed by uh, God to, to, to Moses, and they were contained in the first five books, and they had doctrinal teaching, not just instructions, but great biblical doctrines about God and man and salvation. They're all there, but only partial revelation, right? They're only part, and Jesus fulfilled it all in the sense of bringing it to completion by his person, his teaching, and his work quote from J.C. Ryle says this, the Old Testament is the gospel in bud. This is another gardening analogy. I know a few of you like gardens, and as you get older, gardens become more interesting. <laughs> and, uh, but I, uh, well, it does for me anyway. So um, I liked it before. I like gardens, but now, anyway, yes. Um, this, I like this language, and you can all understand it, whether you're 20 or 50. Um, you can understand this. The Old Testament is the gospel in bud. The New Testament is the gospel in full flower. Right? There's something there. There's the, the embryonic, the truth, the kernel, the teaching, the understanding, but it's like a, a shadow. It's not clear. It's not fulfilled. It's not the, the end. And Jesus says, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. So Jesus is not abolishing them. He's bringing them to fulfillment. Where do you see Jesus in the Old Testament? Can any of you, where immediately do you think, oh yeah, I can see Jesus in the Old Testament? Any, 
any moments that you can see Jesus or a description of him? Isaiah? Yeah, anything particular? Loads of them. Servant king? These prophecies about Jesus? Anywhere else that we see a kind of bud of something that is, is, is in full balloon in the New Testament? Abraham offering Isaac or not offering Isaac and the ram that was provided a, a sacrifice instead of Isaac. Brilliant. Anything else? The son of man in Daniel. Yeah, and Jesus refers to him being that son of man, but it was talked about back then. Chapter in John. Son of David. Correct. Any other stories? How about the the Passover and that story of how where the blood was on the door frames of the doors and the angel of death passed over. And now Jesus, through his death, passes over our sin, has dealt with our sin. The sacrifice has been made. The blood has been shed. I mean, this is the, the Old Testament that is in bud that then comes to full flower and bloom in the life and person and work of Jesus Christ. Amazing. Um, secondly, in the Old Testament, it contains predictive prophecy. And we've talked about some of those. So Isaiah, um, Andy mentioned those. The, the, the multiple mentions of, of like, uh, there's a voice crying out in the wilderness, talking about John the Baptist. There's, oh, you, O Bethlehem, I'm the least of the tribes of Judah. There's descriptions of something that was incredibly fulfilled in the life of Jesus, where he would be born, the, the circumstances of his death. And Lots of these prophecies are messianic. It points to a Messiah. It points to someone who was to come who will fulfill these things. It didn't make total sense there. And even if you read the New Testament, it references a verse back in the Old Testament. And you're like, oh, I wouldn't have got that if I just read that without them explaining that. That's why it's really helpful to have the new explaining the old, right? I love those bits. It's like, thank you. And it's like, oh, I didn't think about that. I didn't think Judas would be mentioned in, I didn't get that then. Of course they wouldn't. But when we look back, we see it was all predicted, foretold, prophesied that Jesus will fulfill it. Jesus fulfilled the prophets in the sense that what was predicted actually happened. The climax of his fulfillment was his death on the cross in which the whole ceremonial system of the Old Testament, both priesthood and sacrifice found its perfect fulfillment. They were the shadow of what was to come. Jesus was the substance. The third um, thing that is contained in the Old Testament in terms of law is the ethical precepts or the moral law of God. So we've had doctrinal teaching, predictive prophecy, and now the ethical precepts. These are all the things that are fulfilled in Jesus. These are all the things that are described under the law and the prophets that Jesus says, I have come to fulfill. These ethical precepts were often misunderstood and disobeyed. And Jesus fulfilled them in the fact that he obeyed them. So he fulfilled them in the fact that he was, he perfectly obeyed the law. He perfectly obeyed his father. He was without sin, born under the law to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus not only obeyed them, but he explains what obedience will involve for his disciples. He doesn't just uh, 
fulfill them and obey them, he then helps his disciples and shows them how they can obey the law, how they can fulfill them. He rejects the superficial interpretation of the law given by the teachers of the law and the Pharisees and outlines the true interpretation. He says, you have heard it was said, but I tell you. He's always referencing the teachers of the law and the scribes saying, there is a new way. This is the way of righteousness. He is undermining, undermining is the wrong word. He is, he is taking their interpretation of the law and fulfilling it, expounding it, and helping them to do that. He fulfills it by declaring the radical demands of the righteousness of God. Jesus fulfills the law. He does not abolish it. It remains. But he then goes on to explain how we become the righteousness of God and how we can fulfill the law. It's like, I'm, I'm stuck now. I don't know how I'm going to do this. How can I be like Jesus? What are the things that I need to do in order to be righteous like the Pharisees? Remember, they're going back to that question again. They've, they've lost that bit about fulfilling, and now they're stuck back with, yeah, but the righteousness of the Pharisees, how am I going to do that? So the second part of what I want to unpack is us and the law. So we had Jesus and the law, and now we're looking at us and the law. Verse 19. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches other accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teacher of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus now gives the vital connection between the law of God and the kingdom of God. It's not gone anywhere. And we still need to keep it. The law is not disappearing. Remember that cosmic status or sentence. Until heaven and earth disappear, it will remain. So this is going to last. So everyone, since the time of Jesus, has to fulfill the law. Has to, has to obey the law. And so how are we going to do that? It's impossible. Unless you are as righteous as the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. There is a new way. And Jesus is ushering in a new righteousness. And Jesus is describing the way that we become righteous. Not that we get more righteous, that we become righteous. You see, righteousness is a gift. It is not earned. We don't earn our righteousness because Jesus came to give us righteousness. And it is given to us a gift. We can't earn it. It's like wages. Hopefully, many of you here earn a wage for doing work. And you are paid a wage. You're paid a salary for doing the work you do. Or maybe it's little or a lot. But you're, it's a remuneration. You're paid for what you do. And that's how they approached righteousness in the Old Testament. It was like, it was a payment. It was, a, it was something they earned. It was a righteousness that had to come through fulfilling and obeying all these laws and requirements of the law. They would never be able to do it. It was impossible. It would never create the righteousness, the standard that Jesus, the holiness that God required. And Jesus came to usher in a new way. It says, we have received righteousness as a gift. He was the perfectly fulfilled the law and died in our place so that by believing in Jesus, 
we exchange our sin and shame and guilt for his righteousness. It's why they call it the divine exchange. It's this incredible exchange that happens. What we bring to him is not our good works. And the thing, I've done all this, Jesus. This is what I've done. I've, I'm this, I think, 611. I've, I'm, and this is what I'm bringing, the most holy. We're not quite enough. And Jesus actually, rather than bringing our righteous acts and our goodness and the things that we're proud of, we need to bring him our sin, our shame, our guilt, and come to him at the cross and say, I'm a sinner. Rather than look at what I've done, it's like, look what I haven't. And look what the wrong things I've done and the sinful ways I've treated people. And my heart is, I'm so guilty, I'm so ashamed. And Jesus, because he died on the cross, gives us, or it's the, the theologians call it imputed or given. It's like received his righteousness. And now we are cleansed. Remember that image of being washed whiter than snow. Our sins are removed as far as the east are from the west, and we have received the righteousness of God. We are made holy. We are made new. This is that moment where the gospel songs speak about, my chains fell off, my heart was free. That's the moment when Christ's righteousness becomes your own, and you are made righteous. You are holy, and in that instance, you are saved. You are rescued. And this is the amazing truth that Jesus is underlining for his followers that there is a righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And it's me. It's my gift. It's my righteousness that is not earned, but it is given because I died on the cross. Amen. And so Jesus is talking about another righteousness. And this is spoken about in the Old Testament as we talked about some of those words, the bud and now the flower. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 33. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. And this is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. Here's the bud now that's describing what Jesus came to do. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Jesus is describing what was going to happen. The Old Testament is described. Jeremiah the prophet in bud form. He can see the bud. He doesn't know the flower. But in some ways they saw ahead. These prophets saw ahead to a time when God was going to pour out his spirit. And the old and the young will prophesy. He was seeing in bud what Jesus would bring to flower. And it would be the law of God in their minds and written on their hearts, not hearts of stone like the, the, the laws of the Ten Commandments written on those tablets, but now written in hearts. This was a new righteousness. This is one, I've got to follow these stone tablets and then I will be able to be righteous. This was a new way, not the bud, but the flower when God was going to say, no, that is not the way. I make a new and living way. Through Christ and his death and resurrection is the new way, the new righteousness that you receive from him. And that is the way that you go beyond the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. What a moment. I love that bud that becomes a flower. And in Romans, Paul unpacks this bud even more. But now, apart from the law, 
This is great. I, Paul's so helpful. I, my words are not as good as his. So let's, let's summarize with Paul. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. Notice he's using the law and the prophets. Remember Jesus said the law and the prophets? And now Paul is explaining it some more. Um, but, now, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. This righteousness that Jesus is talking about, the righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees and the teach the law, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are all justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. We are justified. We're in a, we are made righteous. We have now become the righteousness of God. We are clean, cleansed, made holy forever. This is a state. We are now, remember the Bible says, in Christ. Well, I am now holy because he has made me holy. I am righteous because I have received his righteousness. Oh, I love Jesus. Thank you so much for what you have done. That I no longer have to... I have a, a visual aid here. And uh, I want to go into how this impacts us on a day-to-day life. And how we can live this way. These are my... Um, my uh, additions to my life, the things that I know should be doing and uh, the saltiness that I need to be. And maybe this is being, being the light of the world. So I've got this and I need to do that and I need to tell my neighbors I need to be salty in my speech and I need to do that. And I've got these things that I need to do and this, okay, I've got another one. And this, and those are the things I'm doing, great. I've now got, this is my righteousness and I'm feeling pretty good. You know, I actually did what the last week's message talked about, and I'm feeling pretty good with myself, and now I will just finish that off, and now this means that I, this is righteousness, am righteous. I don't know whether you know this, but Duplo, the big Lego, fits into the small Lego. Did you know that? Amazing. Mic drop for some people. Duplo fits into regular Lego. And there's my life and my righteousness. I've done so well, and now I'm so good. I feel great, and I'm feeling better about myself because I'm, you know, look, this is my righteousness. Nice yellow and shiny. Is that the righteousness that Jesus is talking about and how we fulfill and how we surpass the righteousness? I don't think so. That's the wrong way around. And yet we still lapse into this kind of thinking that I'm feeling pretty good about myself now because I've, you know, (laughs) look, Jesus, you see those things. Actually, it's the other way around. This, the base plate, is the righteousness of God. And the things that we do, our life, the things we live out, the the salt and light and all the things, the those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who come for the morning, those that are are kind and gentle, are are the things, I knew this would happen, that are built on it. So now those things flow from and are based 
on the righteousness of Christ. And they flow from the new heart and the new life that Jesus has given us. And rather than being something we earn brownie points before and feel better about ourselves, they flow from the righteousness of God. They flow from the holiness and the new creation that he has made you. This is what Jesus is explaining and, and just turning up their world upside down. And so for them listening, it was radical. And we sometimes don't get that same impact because we don't have the teachers of the law and we don't have the, the Pharisees and all the things they had to do. But it still impacts us today. And we can still fall into the trap of feeling like I have to earn my salvation. I have to, I have to be more righteous. We are made righteous. You can't be more righteous. You are righteous. Not yours. Jesus is that he's given you. But, wow, I, I, that means I don't need to do any of those things, right? Okay, so I could, yeah, brilliant. Okay, good, yeah. So I could just, I'll just do that then, right? Is that, no, yes. Anybody got an opinion? Paul says, no, 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 no. I think you've misunderstood. You've misunderstood because by being this, these things naturally flow. And this is how we live. It's not now, oh, well, I'll use an excuse to do what I like. Don't need these things. I've got this, and now I can do whatever. No, 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 no. How can you then go back? You are made new. You're a new creation. Now live your life, outwork this salvation. Go on being made holy. It's like, wait a second. I thought you said we were righteous and holy. I did. But there is a fact that God is, we are made holy, but we are being made holy. This is this strange dynamic that Jesus says, I've made you holy, but go on being made holy. The sanctification, the outworking of what God has done in us. It's not adding to, it's an outworking of the life that God has put in us. The outworking of his righteousness. And these things that he's talking about in the Sermon on the Mount that we'll come back to, that Theo and, and Dave's talking about, about lust and about anger, they're only possible as they flow from God-enabled power and passion through the Holy Spirit. So, I think I've run out of time. Where am I? Keep going. <laughs> right. Let's stand. There's a, um, a statement in here that says, if anyone sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do accordingly, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be great in the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes I think, do we, do we, do we have to be great? Like, why, why does he mention great and least? I say, can we just be okay? Can we just, why do you need to put that kind of great? Like, oh, I've got to, do, I've got to be great. Now I've got to try and be great. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying at all. He's saying that he wants us to, he wants us to be great, but he's saying that the way that you are great is by following 
me and living from that place of being made righteous and having a new heart and new stone. New heart that is changed by the Spirit of God. And as we um, come to communion, just want us to reflect on what God has done for us and what Jesus has done on the cross, that he has fulfilled and met all the requirements of the law in his perfect life, and that in his mercy, he has forgiven us when we repent of our sin, when we bring to him our lost, broken, fragile attempts of being righteous and say, I can't do this. I need you to free me. I need you to forgive me. I need you. I need your righteousness and your holiness. So as we worship, let's remember that Jesus has done it all. That rather than abolishing, he has fulfilled all the requirements that God intended for him. He was on a mission to bring about this kingdom of God that changed the world.